understand. special speaker, Joe Ross, will share his uh, faith story with us. And I'm sorry, but could you stand up again? I'm sorry. And we're going to continue our tradition of passing on the peace. So go ahead and say hi to the people around you. Tell them how you're doing and just acknowledge people around you, okay? As you're making your way back to your seats, we're gonna sing Guide My Feet. So if you wanna turn in your blue hymnal, it's number 546. The words will also be on the PowerPoint. Why don't you stand up? Sorry. <laughs> Guide my feet
Please remain standing and turn to number 557 in the blue hymnal, O God in Restless Living. And we'll be singing verses um, 1, 2, and 4 of this. 557.
I was given the honor today of presenting our speaker. He is a professor of economics and along with his beautiful family, led SST not once or twice, but 10 times in Peru and had a great impact on many students. Um, he's a great spiritual mentor for many people and I'd encourage you to put your iPads down and put your hands together for Dr. Gerald Ross Richard. Good morning. So there I was, five years old, wearing a bow tie, a striped sport jacket, shorts, this was Southern California after all, and smiling for the camera. I can still remember the picture. What a sweet little boy I was. When you grow up as a pastor's kid, a PK, you get plenty of photo opportunities. So there's the one with the little puppy stuffed inside my cowboy boot, or me in my wannabe baseball uniform, pretending I'm a member of the LA Dodgers, or the adorable young family. Me, my mom, my dad, my little brother, dressed to a T, squeaky clean, arriving for church just in time, sitting up there in the front row. And you smile, you smile whether you feel like it or not. Well, life was good. It was really good. It was almost perfect. But the late 1960s were a very tumultuous time in our country. A rejection of the traditional, the old, a search for something new, something modern, something better, something progressive. And it was also a time of tragic losses. I think about the deaths of leaders like Martin Luther King or Robert F. Kennedy, of cultural icons like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison of the Doors. And my family was not immune from tragedy either. Two years after that picture, I'm seven years old, my family has decided to spend a weekend up in the mountains in a cabin that somebody had rented for us. And I remember being awoken in the middle of the night by my dad and told the unimaginable. My brother Randy is dead. And they shuffle us off into our car. I'm in the back of a little Volkswagen Beetle by myself, my mom and dad in the front. And as a kid, I had seen these photos, or not photos, paintings of, of what's going to happen at the end times. And you have like a cemetery on a dark night, and you can see these glowing spirits going up into heaven. And I remember looking out the window with my eyes peeled all the way down the mountain, thinking that if I look carefully enough, I'll see my brother Randy's spirit floating up into heaven. They told us that they did everything they could. There was a doctor who was staying in a cabin next door to ours. When they sounded the alarm, 
woke people up. Is there a doctor around here? He came and he tried to resuscitate my brother, but it was too late. I was too sick to attend the funeral. I mean, they got me all dressed up and I had a little black suit with a little skinny black tie. And I was in the back of the hearse limousine with my mom and dad. And I vomited all over that car. <laughs> and they took me home. And, and there was a nice older couple that was with me. And, and they said, we'll take you to the shopping mall and buy you a, a toy fire truck. And I said, I don't want a toy fire truck. I want my brother back. And the people in our church community, where my dad was a pastor, they tried to do what they could. They tried to be as helpful and as comforting as possible. And, and they would say things like, well, God would only take his prettiest flower to be with him up in heaven. Doesn't that make you feel good? You'll see him again in heaven. Can't you appreciate the four years of his life here on earth and the time you had to play with him? And I didn't say, but I felt inside, like, you do not know what we are going through. Don't even try to say anything. It's not helping. Our culture is not very good at grieving, and my parents were quickly given the advice, well, just get over it. Have another child. You can replace the one that died. And indeed, my brother Darren, who was born two years later, I love. Of course I do. I love him too. But I was still angry inside. And I still asked God in, in my darkest, most private moments, why did he have to go? Why did you have to take him from me? Well, eventually things turned to back to normal, I guess, or a new normal. And I continued to show up with my family at church every Sunday, and I played the role of being a good pastor's kid. And I remember all the interesting conversations in the back of the car, um, over the kitchen table, about, well, you know the nice-looking guy who's, you know, one of the ushers in the church? He and his wife are about to break up and get divorced, but don't tell anyone. It's a secret. The woman who plays the piano every Sunday morning, well, She's in a treatment program right now for her addiction to prescription medications, but she'll be out in three weeks. And don't tell anyone. We'll just say that she's gone on vacation somewhere. And I started to realize that the rosy picture that was painted, the happy photograph that was taken, didn't depict the reality of life in my church and in my personal life. And so I became very disillusioned with the institutional church. And when I was 18 years old, I went about as far away as I could to go to college. I went to Goshen College in Goshen, Indiana, 2,000 miles from my home in Southern California. And so much happened to me while I was here. My mind was expanded. My world opened up. I learned about other traditions, other philosophies, other religions. Learned a lot about German and economics, my double majors. And I felt free to shed the faith of my parents and to choose something new. Hmm, what is that gonna be?
Well, my junior year, I had the chance to go and study in Germany for the entire year, two semesters. And it was a time of formation for me, or maybe I would better um, describe it as a time of deconstruction, taking things apart. Germany at that time was very modern, very advanced compared to the United States. It was a place of post-modernity, post-Christendom, relativism, and I learned a lot. And I learned especially about my country, the United States of America, of which the Germans were extremely critical. At the time, we were, uh, the United States Army was invading Grenada to save some American students, or so the story went. And I was finding myself in a place where I had to defend what my nation, my president, my military was doing. And it was hard to defend. And I learned about environmental destruction and social injustice. And I became embarrassed and really ashamed of my own culture. Well, I came back to the United States of America as a changed man. I had learned so much. I had grown up so much. I was 21 now. And I was ready for something different. And Goshen wasn't ready for me. <laughs> I wanted to tell my friends about what I had experienced and what changes I wanted to try to make in the world, in my own life, and they didn't have a lot of patience for that because that wasn't their experience. And the critique that they had of my culture wasn't their critique. And soon I made some new friends. And these friends were about as frustrated and bored and full of anxiety as I was. What are we going to do when we graduate from Goshen College? At that time, um, most of us lived off campus, saving some money, eating a lot of top ramen. And all I was doing was studying. I wasn't involved in a church. I wasn't volunteering for a good nonprofit organization. I wasn't relating to anyone that was from a different age cohort, an older person, a younger person. All I was doing was studying, and it just was not enough. And I didn't know where else to go and how else to reach out. Now, in Germany, I had had my first taste of what the Germans call liquid bread, if you know what I mean, um, beer. That's where beer was invented. And I thought that that can be my new identity. I can come back to Goshen College with 21 years under my belt and an ID card that works, and I can buy German beer and impress people with my new taste and my new sophistication, my new worldliness. How mature that would be. And so that's what I did. And, and I found myself a new uniform. Now, this was the age of kind of punk, and punk was becoming new wave or whatever it was. And, and I loved the talking heads and the psychedelic furs and all these bands. And we had stereos in our houses with speakers that were this big. And, and my uniform was a black, very tight pair of parachute pants. And my roommates and I all got ourselves sleeveless day glow t-shirts. And just to be outrageous, mine was pink, 
right? And then we had orange and green and yellow, I think, for my friends. And I had pierced ears, and I would get like the longest dangling earrings I could possibly find and spike my hair with mousse. And so I became a new kind of PK. I exchanged the pastor for party. But of course, I was still just a kid. This didn't actually make me grown up. I realized that I wasn't doing anything to solve the world's problems. Well, talking about them, I guess, right? But the social injustices, the unsustainable path that we're on, the resource depletion, I wasn't doing anything to solve that. The imported beer just numbed the pain, because it is a drug after all. And I got a little heavier, and I got some black rings under my eyes. And when it was time to go from Goshen, I didn't know what else to do besides keep studying, and so I enrolled in a PhD program. And looking back on it now, I picked the program that would be the most opposite of Christianity that I could possibly find, economics. Perfect. There's no God in economics. Economics is about rationality, what happens if we model human behavior in a way that people are rational, like computers, and self-interested. Greed is okay. In fact, it can be good. After all, that's how people act anyway. And so I went out to graduate school, and I spent five years learning a lot of math and expanding my brain, developing my human capital. And that's about all I did. And looking back, I realized that that period ushered in about a decade of darkness in my life. I was alone. Economics gave me a focus, and I was a weekend warrior on Saturday and Sunday with my friends. And finally, at the age of 32, this very provocative person walks into my life, actually walks into my office, which became walking into my life, and began a conversation with me. And the conversation continued over a series of like hikes and backpack trips over the next couple of years. And, and it started like this. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? <laughs> um, no, I'm too cool for that. Um, well, I, I know what you mean, but I wouldn't exactly call it that. That sounds really like evangelical. Um, I do believe in God, and I really like what Jesus had to say. He was a really good teacher. Um, he was really one of the original radicals. He hiked a lot, had a lot to say about social justice and you know, taking care of God's creation. Um, well, okay, I guess I do. I mean, I do, I do have a relationship with God. Um, I know God exists, but the institutional church is so lame. It is so messed up that I just, I can't even go there. I'm a PK after all, I'm kind of a rebel without a cause. And this person said to me, well, Christians need forgiveness too? Ah, 
yeah, and I know what you mean. And yeah, maybe I do also. And I was then challenged to read the Bible. And of course, I knew all about the Bible. I had gone to Sunday school for 18 years, but I'd never actually read it. You know what I mean? Like from beginning to end. I got myself a one-year Bible. It took about a year and a half. And, and I started to discover things in the Bible that nobody had ever preached about. Some really unusual things. And, and here was one of them. This is from Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. Or in another version, do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. And I realized that's all I've been doing is relying on my own understanding. Now, what happens when you meet a provocative person like this who challenges your basic assumptions, who engages you in stimulating conversation? Um, well, it's obvious, right? You ask them to marry you. <laughs> and she did. And, and Soon before we got married, I was on a road trip by myself coming back from Northern California, and I did this really stupid thing. I picked up a hitchhiker, okay, so not recommended, um, but there was just something about him. I mean, he looked like he was from another planet. He was, um, like, beyond hippie, like, way, way out there, and he had his guitar case, and, and I, was, I made sure I was in a truck, and I made sure I had him put his backpack in the back of the truck so he couldn't get to his weapon if he had one and all that kind of stuff. And, and he said, like just out of the blue, so do you know what the problem with Western culture is? Uh, hmm, no, tell me. And, and he said, if I was gonna draw a human being in Western culture, kind of a, a caricature, it would have a head about this big. Okay. And then at the very bottom, there'd be room for a little tiny body, a little tiny torso and little legs and hands sticking out. And you can barely see the hands. That's our problem. It's all about the brain. We just think about things. We analyze things. But we don't actually do anything about them because our hands are tiny and they're incapable. And if we have a heart, it's hard to see on this little stick figure caricature. And maybe there's a soul in there somewhere, but I don't know, look hard. And I thought about that and I thought about my own life and I realized that that's me. I'm the guy with the giant brain, or so I would like to think. With so many extra brain cells, I could afford to destroy them for a while, one drink at a time. And, And I decided I wanted to, like, grow the rest of myself. You know what I mean? I want to have a heart. I want hands that do things. A soul. Some connection to a reality bigger than myself. That would be good. Well, things went really well. Jane and I started a family. We had a couple children. I went to seminary. San Francisco Theological Seminary in Northern California, part of the Presbyterian Church. 
And one afternoon, I was upstairs in my office in our little seminary housing complex, and I was doing some work, trying to get ready for an exam or something, and I heard this scream, and one of my children came running upstairs and said, Daddy, come here right now. And I went outside, and my wife was on the ground. Now, she was trying to break down some cardboard boxes, and there was cardboard on top of cardboard, which is a little bit slippery, and she was doing it on concrete, and she was eight months pregnant, so kind of out of balance a little bit. And she hit the ground and broke her elbow, like a big chip came off her elbow. And she was in intense pain. And we went to the hospital and learned that she would need surgery and that this may not play out very well for the baby that was inside of her belly at that time. And we're all about natural childbirth, you know, C-section, how's this gonna work out if we need to do that? And there was a chaplain there who was one of my colleagues from grad school. He was just a couple years ahead of me. And I said to him, I can't believe that it would be God's will that my wife would break her elbow right now. This is like really horrible. I can't believe that this would be part of God's plan. And he looked at me and he said, he said, Gerald, gravity happens. <laughs> gravity happens. Like we're humans. There are these laws of nature. Like, don't blame it on God. God didn't want your wife to break her elbow. She just fell. God doesn't promise to keep us from harm. God promises to be with us at all times so we can deal with whatever we are going through. So I came to Goshen College six years ago, and strangely enough, we had the opportunity to lead the study service term in Peru. And who else but Goshen College would give an economics professor an opportunity to go lead SST in a country that he has never been before. Thank you, Goshen College. Thanks for the trust. And we had an incredible time, and it was crazy. It was wild. I never could have done it without leaning into my faith, without knowing that there's somebody out there that's helping us, that's keeping us going. I mean, it was insane, some of the things that happened. I mean, we, we had this trip that we wanted to take where we got all the students in a bus, and we want to go to this place we've never been before, and we have this pastor of this Mennonite church with us, and he's going to take us to his home community, we're going to do homestays over the weekend, and it's going to be eight hours, and we get in the bus, and it's 10 hours, and it's like 12 hours, and it's, it's a really long bus ride, and, and one of our students gets sick, and he's like, got to get out of the bus right now. And we open the door, and we stop the bus, and he gets out, and then we drive a little farther down, and it turns out there's a police checkpoint, and the police are are wondering why, when we saw the police checkpoint, we stopped the bus and people started to jump out. And we're explaining that it was just diarrhea, you know? It happens to us gringos. And, and they look at us, and they're worried about child trafficking, and who are these children that should be in school right now? Those are my kids, and here's their passports. And soon we get to the, the village, or I thought it was a village, where our students were going to stay. And, we, and the pastor tells us that two of your students are going to stay with the woman that's going to appear, and we honk the horn on the bus, and a woman does appear from the field, and the two students get out, like with their suitcases, and we say, well, the pastor says, you're gonna stay with her for the weekend, and you're gonna be fine, and the bus drives away, and as it's driving away, the woman starts running away, and the guy says, don't worry, she's gonna go get something, she'll be back, and these two students are kind of like looking at us, like, <laughs> and, and we, 
we all met up at church on Sunday in a Mennonite church, unlike any Mennonite church I've ever seen or probably you've ever seen, unless you were there. And, and it's little and it's tiny and it's adobe. And we act out the story of the Good Samaritan and they ask me to preach and I always have to be ready for that in my best Spanish. And, and afterwards there's a potluck and there's no pots. Instead, there's these little ladies who've been carrying around these blankets full of something all morning, and they dump them out on another blanket on the ground, and it's potatoes. And some of the potatoes are like three or four or five years old, and they've been dehydrated and reconstituted, and they taste like that. And, <laughs> and then afterwards, the potluck is over, and we're invited to go into the church to dance, and they break out this really rhythmic Andean music, and all the women are wearing these high lace-up boots, like what the Spanish would have brought over hundreds of years ago, and that's still the style there. And they should be in New York City at a club somewhere, because they have these big flowing skirts and we're dancing, unlike any Mennonite church I've ever been to. Or there was the time that I'm with my family in a taxi, and the taxi driver says he'll take us to this place where the bus can't go because the bus was canceled and we're going and we're up at like 14, 15, 16,000 feet and dropping back down and we stop to go to the bathroom and the driver, Pedro, is in the bathroom for a really long time and he comes back out and he looks dizzy and he says, I think the altitude's getting to me, I can't drive. And I'm thinking, I'm not supposed to drive when I'm in Peru, I don't have my driver's license, but I guess it's life or death, and so give me the keys, and my wife is trying to convince Pedro, no, we drive all the time in the United States, don't worry, like, we can do this, and I did it, and, and the rain is coming down, and there's construction, and the road becomes a dirt road, and there's trucks coming the other way, and my daughter says, and she's, you know, looking at Pedro, and he's like buckled over, just writhing in pain. I don't know if he's going to make it. We got to get down to a lower elevation. And the quickest way down is forward, not backward. And we're going forward. And we got to go fast, but I don't want to go off the road. And, and my daughter, Sierra, says, Daddy, what if Pedro dies? <laughs> and then we get to a police checkpoint. And we have to explain that, no, I don't have a driver's license, but I do back in the United States. And we were taking Pedro to a lower elevation, um, actually away from Lima. And he must have his car registration somewhere. And can you help us? And there is no police checkpoint. And we get to where we're going. And Pedro is fine. And we do the host family visit. And everything turns out OK. And I never could have done that with my brain. My brain wasn't big enough. I was not capable of doing that. So if you ask me, what's my faith story? What's my testimonial, to use the good Peruvian word? My spiritual journey is like a hand, all right? And Sometimes it's open and sometimes it's closed. And a closed hand is good for certain things. It's good for protection, aggression, I guess. It's good for taking care of oneself. An open hand? When I open myself up, when I expose myself, when I rely not on my own understanding, but realize that I'm part of a thing that's bigger than me, when I lean into my faith, then I can shake somebody else's hand. Or if I open both hands, I can embrace somebody else. And I can open up my mind and my heart and my soul as well and feel the presence of a power infinitely more great than my own. And through that, my humanity 
is complete. Amen. Let's all stand once more and join in singing number 506 for our sending hymn, I Sought the Lord, number 506. I sought the May you, in the days, the weeks, the months to come, find opportunities to open up your mind and your hands and your hearts and your soul to a presence that is greater than you are. Amen.